Last week, one of the cybersecurity industry's premier events, the RSA conference, finally came back in person. Cybersecurity experts and researchers and thousands of companies showed up in San Francisco and took over the Moscone Center. There were first-time meetings after years on Zoom. And while we were there, we talked to Gilman Louie, the founder of InQtel, the CIA's venture capital arm in Silicon Valley. Please, there's some seats down here in front if you'd like to sit down. He's the man who famously brought Tetris and Pokemon Go to America. And just last month, he became a member of President Biden's Intelligence Advisory Board. Welcome, Gilman Louie, to our first Click Here fireside chat. Which has given him a unique opportunity to have the president's ear at a time when digital threats, both criminal and nation state, are exploding. And like many of us, his big focus is on China. Quite frankly, the leadership is filled with PhD, doctor's degrees, or engineers. Right, I think if you took our top 16, it looks like a lot of lawyers. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and this is Click Here, a podcast about the world of cyber and intelligence. Today, an extended sit-down with Gilman Louie. We talked about superpower competition. If we want to get in the game, we got to put the rest of America to work. The Middle Kingdom is a cyber threat. It's more than just the PLA thinking about how to do cyber and how he became one of the world's most successful venture capitalists. Stay with us. If you're looking for a daily guide to cybersecurity news and policy, sign up for the Cyber Daily from Recorded Future News. It serves up the day's most interesting and important cyber stories from our sister publication, The Record, and then aggregates all of the big cyber stories you might have missed from news outlets around the world. Just go to therecord.media and click on Cyber Daily to get all you need to know about the world of cybersecurity right in your inbox. Hello, I'm Adam Fleming from the Global Story podcast from the BBC World Service. We are looking at Lena Khan, the face of the U.S. government's battle to regulate big tech. She's already redefined the way we talk about monopolies. Now she's taking on the likes of Amazon and Meta. But who is she? And will she win? The Global Story brings you fresh takes and smart perspectives from BBC journalists around the world. Find us wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Our interview with Gilman Louis took place at the Intercontinental San Francisco before a live audience. So you might hear a little bit from them. Um, okay, Gilman, you have, you have the presence here. Uh, pretend I'm President Biden. I say, Gilman, I'm worried about China. Uh, what's the most important thing, the first thing that we should do on Monday over the next year and over the next decade? Okay, so I have to do my standard government disclaimer. I am only speaking for myself. I'm not speaking for any government agencies or any other affiliates. You know, everybody is thinking about China. And the big question is, for the rest of the world, you have these two potentially adversarial countries, but unlike in the history of the last hundred years, there's a codependency between those two countries. And so how's this going to play out? And so the, the first piece of advice I think anybody should give is you, we have to think in terms of strategic time frames. If anybody studied Chinese history, and it, it, you know, it is a culture that has existed for over 3,000 years. In 1820, 
China was the world's largest GDP producing country in the world. It was five times larger than the UK, 20 times larger than the US. Then you put China and India back in 1820s together, that was over 50% of the world's GDP. And then almost like a snap, the, the country basically goes through a whole series of turmoil that they deem as the 100 years of humiliation. And so when China says it wants to be a world power, they're not talking about a, themselves as an emerging nation. And that's causing the conflict, that's causing the tension. It isn't something that is an interesting thing to be number one versus being number two. They think it's all about their country as survival. They think that they have to go through the US to be the number one. They've set out the timetables. So they've said that by 2025, they will be decoupled in major lanes of technology made in China 2025. That's, when you put a policy with date, you know, that's something us in Washington, we never put a date to anything because we know it's sort of like, we get the month right, but we never get the year right. So, so they've said they're gonna get there by 2025. They have moved up the modernization plans of the PLA, their military, that was originally scheduled for 2035 to complete the modernization. They moved it up to 2027. You know, I have a lot of respect for the Pentagon, but we tend to slip four years at a time. They're, they're pulling it in. So their view is, as a country, they want to get to the top of the heap by 2049, the 100th anniversary of the Communist Party. And, and, and part of that is to be able to win in any domain, anywhere in the world, against any adversary, any day of the week. And that's their objectives. And as you see them developing, do you think that they're on, they're on track? Well, you know, it's mixed. I, I think G overreached. I, I think there's this, this, you can see it happening right now in China. There's this, China has decided that the road to the top of the, the pile needs to be through being tough. We want to be wolf warriors, right? The Chinese diplomats are projecting power, wolf warrior strength, right? They, they even go down to the media. Entertainment, actually, by the way, tells more about a culture than the news. Because entertainment is about aspirational positioning of a culture, right? You know, so you can look at our TV, you know, our Netflix, and you know, the, our movies, you know, like Top Gun. You know, that's our aspirations of what we want to be and what we want to project. And quite frankly, the coolest thing five years ago was all the dramas, of modern dramas in China, was all about becoming a successful tech entrepreneur, <laughs> competing against some bad, evil group of corporates in China, and eventually going public on the NASDAQ. <laughs> every, every TV show had the same drama, right? You know, young love, poor family, worked the way up, got together, and got there. Now you look, and it's their version of Tom Cruise. They don't sometimes name the United States, but when you, know, you see a picture of an Aegis-class ship off in the distance with them in Chinese saying, you're you're violating our warriors at the end of a movie? Right. That's clear communications of what their aspirations 
are where they want to be. Wow. So it, this, this sort of sets up my next question. You know, in the wake of Ukraine, uh, everyone's talking about the invasion of Taiwan, or whether it would happen or not. I, I'm an old Sinologist. I lived in China for a long time. The old China that I knew in the 80s, I would never think in a million years that they would invade Taiwan. This new wolf warrior China, is, is that, do you think it's possible? You know, the Chinese are studying the Ukrainian situation very closely. And how we react and how the West reacts to Russia is beginning to change the way China views themselves. If you actually look at their buying of weapon systems and the retraining of their military, it's all about forcing, quite frankly, the United States further and further away. You know, their hypersonic missile programs, their next generation uh, attack cruisers, their submarine programs. I wouldn't say all their decisions are the best decisions because sometimes they copy our mistakes as well. So, you know, they want to build aircraft carriers because it's the biggest thing on, that floats. It's also the biggest <laughs> target that's floating around. But as of today, if you kind of take a look at the Chinese military systems, they, they can easily attack any of our ships all the way out to Guam. In some weird way, Europe is the battlefield right now on an economic uh, front and information front. And Which, Africa. And Africa, right? Now, competition is not bad, right? Competition can be great. Like, we can compete on who can race to cleaning up the environment first. We can race to, like, explore space. But if the competitions end up like the kind of competition that we're seeing now in the Ukraine, and the Chinese say, look, if the Russians couldn't do it, we can do it, that's a really bad day for everybody. In fact, my biggest fear is a weak China and a weak United States. A weak China and a weak United States sets up a condition where if you're running a country and things are not quite going your way domestically, it's always good to have an external threat to distract you. And if your adversary, in this case, your competitor, the US, is weak, you set up a condition where they think there's a period of vulnerability where they can get that away. So a weak China and a weak United States can set up the condition for the kinds of conflicts that none of us, Chinese or the Americans, really, really want. Do you think they're going to invade Taiwan? I think they're beginning to realize the lesson about the Ukrainians is that there's one thing to say you can do a lightning strike and the leadership bolts, like what took place in Afghanistan. It's another thing to take a country if a country resists. So that's issue number one. Issue number two, there's this big body of water between, you know, it's just 110 miles of water between, you know, Taiwan and China. And they got to figure out how to get from there across the water and do that entire logistics train. The Russians have found out the hard way when you have really shiny objects go out onto the battlefield without that logistics train behind it, because all you have are targets. So I think the Chinese are kind of rethinking their strategy. I also think from a mil military point of view, they understand the importance of non-commissioned officers, because the Russians don't have particularly good ones, neither do the Chinese. In fact, in the last month, the Chinese have basically like decided to restructure their entire NCO organization because they realized that the corruption there 
would destroy them if they ever had to go into the battlefield. But that's not to say that five or six years from now that those conditions would still hold out. Just think about it. Chinese would complete their modernization by 2027. The U.S. modernization programs, next generation of aircraft, sixth-gen aircraft, next generation ships, right, all scheduled to come online in 2035, okay, 2027, if we're on schedule. And, you know, we're not particularly good at that, right? <laughs> but 2027, 2035, there's that period of vulnerability that's out there militarily, but it's not just military. Economically, they're scheduled, on schedule to overtake the U.S. as a world economy but at 2030. So economic projection, military projection, and we haven't talked about the entire information space as well. It's all coming together at the same time. So I think there is a temptation to invade a place like Taiwan because there will be that window of vulnerability and a lot. Taiwan is more than just this interesting islands. I mean, 90% of our advanced chips come from TSMC. If TSMC goes boom or gets taken over, what happens economically to the rest of the world, particularly this country? I, so I want to I want to build a little bit on what you were talking about in terms of technology. I mean, how does we're here at RSA? Um, if you're watching China, how is it going about building itself as a cyberpower? Well. Cyber is the new contested space. And I would say our view of cyber perhaps is different than their view of cyber. We finally slice all of this together. Uh, and, I, and I made a joke the other day, um, and I actually stole it from my partner. My partner's Bill Pearl. Bill was the deputy director of the NSA. So I give Bill total credit for this. And I, asked, I said, Bill, I, like, how, do you, how do you think about cybersecurity? I mean, how do you think about the problem? And he goes, a thousand points of light and no illumination, right? I mean, it's basically, we got all these parts and all these great technologies, but they don't mesh together particularly well. Now, the Chinese are much more holistic thinking. It's more than just the PLA thinking about how to do cyber attacks. They have this military civil fusion. Quite frankly, their leadership is filled with, yeah, I think I, the number was 15, top leaders of the Central Party, at least 13 of them have PhD, doctor's degrees, or engineers, right? I think if you took our top 16, it looks like a lot of lawyers. And if you're gonna win in a technical race to superiority, I kind of rather bet on the engineers than I do with the lawyers. Cyber isn't gonna be like the way it is today. There aren't gonna be a bunch of people staring in front of screens calling up and emailing net operators, say, hey, there's some threat potential over here. I learned this on the dark web. You know, that's what all, all of our business is today. But tomorrow, it's real-time speed, algorithm warfare. It's going to be algorithms trying to outsmart the other algorithms. It's going to be machine on machine, algorithm on algorithm. Those are the systems of the future, and that requires total integration. You look at the Ukrainians have so far, at least in the information space, outmaneuver the Russians. Why? Because they're better integrated than the Russians are. The Russians have not integrated their EW capability. Their cyber capability, while very, very capable, is siloed, right? The Ukrainians are fighting for their lives, so they have to integrate. That's the lesson that we got to take away. So you have to think that way.
Did that surprise you that they were that effective at it? Or did I, you? I, I think, you think desperation. That's... It is not surprising for anybody who has spent any time over there to understand how deep it is, how personal it is. And the question for the Taiwanese is do they have that same core dedication to that cause or will they just fold? And so it starts with that human and with the human then taking advantage of all the technology around them and to use it in that coordinated way, that's transformative. Here's the other worry. The Chinese are studying what's going on in Ukraine, in Ukraine as deeply as we are. Our concern is they're just more agile than we. They don't, they don't have the federal acquisition regulations. They don't have the FAR. You know, we got Congress, <laughs> right? I won't say that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> but right now, as of today, Wolf Warriors versus Tom Cruise and Top Gun and Maverick, that's where we're heading for. The movie did do very well. Really well. When we come back, America's cyber future and how blue-collar jobs could be the thing that saves us all. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to our interview with Gilman Louie. So let me pivot for a second to, to investing. And one of the things that you're quite well known for is you've said it's that you pursue things that other people diminish as foolish. So as you're planning your investments now, what are people dismissing as foolish that you're all in on? Okay, so um, here are the foolish things to do today that I think we have to do if we want to be competitive in the future. We have to start investing back in hardware. In hardware? In hardware, in things like chips, right? And microelectronics in advanced manufacturing, in robotics, right? We, and the reason why it's foolish from a venture capital point of view is because, look, the last 20 years has been great as a VC. I gotta tell you, it's like printing money. You know, we have things like these, we create things like SPACs and we do all sorts of you know, wonderful instruments and we do trade-ups and we get P numbers to come in and come in with huge multiples. We do mergers. You know, we trade companies at 40 times revenue, right? I mean, that's kind of what we've done. And the reason why we've been able to do all of that is because the hard investing that gave us the last 20 years actually took place in the 19 late 1980s to early 2000s, is investing in companies like Qualcomm and NVIDIA, right? And, you know, reimagining Apple and, you know, actually making the x86 actually work, right? It, that it takes 10 years to cook a company. And the Chinese realize why capital investment is critical for this success. I mean, we do really dumb things. I mean, really dumb things. Just think about 5G, right? And so now we say, we're telling everybody in the world, don't use Chinese 5G. 
Well, whose fault is that? It wasn't Huawei's fault. That's our fault. Because we were short-sighted, we didn't want to make that investment, and then we don't have very good industrial policy, and we make bad decisions. So if the U.S. is to be successful, we should take the Chinese list. You know, we always joke that the Chinese steal everything from us. We should steal some of their stuff and bring it back here. They have a great list. Let me tell you what's on their list. Microelectronics, AI and ML, quantum sciences, advanced manufacturing, advanced communication, synthetic biology, biotech, fusion. That's their list. What's our list? It's, you know, we want to do, you know, social networking companies, right? Because it's easy. It's not going to be easy anymore. We're about ready to run out of gas on tech. You know, as we're willing to make those hard investments now, we are not going to catch the Chinese. We are ahead of the Chinese in many of these lanes, but our trajectory is like this and their trajectory is like this. And that crossover point is 2030. There's always been this sense that we have, we allow people to be more creative and more lateral thinking and the Chinese are kind of keep everything in a box. And we've seen this with big tech in China, which was starting to grow, got too popular, got too strong. China chopped them off at the knees. Uh, is it old-fashioned thinking to think that our creativity will get us out of this, that the Chinese have sort of figured out how to maneuver around that, that box problem? I, I don't think you can assume tomorrow is going to look like yesterday. We do have a creativity advantage, right? Because now I get it. In China, right, failures for them is not an option. That actually holds them back a little bit. And if you were to ask Chinese leadership, I think they would say, America's top 1% is better than their top 1%. And they know that. That's why a lot of Chinese students come and study at our universities. And why, quite frankly, many Chinese students stay here. They don't go back home. But the next 9%, that's what they want to own. And so their view is, let America innovate. And look, I'm not a big believer in five or 20-year plans. It didn't do the Soviet Union a whole lot of good. But Innovation doesn't help you compete against somebody with a plan. If we want to get in the game, we need to create what I call the grand bargain with our tech companies, with Wall Street, with our industrial base. And we got to put the rest of America to work. Now, here's the other thing that nobody wants to talk about. Now, in the 80s and 90s, we had this dream that technology was going to like, transform the world for good. It was gonna increase democracy because we'll allow people to communicate, we'll have more transparency, we'll have the innovation economy that would generate all these great jobs. And it's true, five coastal cities, San Francisco, San Jose, San Diego, Seattle, and Boston, benefited for the tech revolutions. 90% of the innovation jobs happened in those five cities. But for the rest of the country, we gave them you know, the giga jobs. We got them working, picking packages on lines that look like prisons. Like, is that the promise? Anybody creating technology, anybody cutting code, puts a piece of themselves into that code. And we can develop systems that create jobs, that where the human is the delta difference on performance. 
The machine's going to take all the drudgery away. But what are we working on? We are replacing humans. The next 10 years, if we don't watch it, not only will we displace blue-collar jobs, we're now going to displace white-collar jobs. The lawyers, the accountants, the doctors, right? All being replaced by AI. And some of us will make a lot of money doing that. But is that really where we want to be? I'm not saying that we shouldn't do AI, but we can design AI also to be human force multipliers. So we can actually, as technologists, actually build a new economy that takes advantage of those 35 other great centers of excellence around those other great research universities in places like Atlanta, and Boulder, and Austin, and Phoenix, and Pittsburgh, and Philly. Great talent, great research universities that don't cost me a million dollars per program. And we can put the blue collar workforce back, the trades back in. You know, you know, it was, it was really interesting when you talk to the semiconductor foreign companies, you talk to TSMC, um, Samsung, SK Hynix, you know what the biggest concerns they have about building factories here in the US? We don't have enough plumbers to do the fittings, to build out the fabs. We don't have the electricians. We don't have the construction workers because we all abandoned the trades because we said, well, who wants a blue collar job? We got rid of all those schools, right? We attacked our unions. And then we put everybody into these kind of white-collar jobs. But unfortunately, many of those white-collar jobs were jobs that are just grind jobs. Is this the impassioned speech that you give uh, President Biden when you sit down with his advisor? <laughs> well, I don't actually get my speech into the 17th. <laughs> so let me do just a quick lightning sure. round. Um, if I gave you a billion dollars, what would you invest it in? Not enough. One billion isn't enough. If I gave you two billion dollars. But a billion dollars is just a, kind of like a mid-sized venture fund. <laughs> right? I mean, it's if I nothing. gave you $10 billion, what would you invest Give me $25 billion and I'll build you a state-of-the-art fab that needs to be built here in the U.S. that is built by Americans, run by Americans, producing chips for American companies. But that's $25 billion, not one, not two, and not ten. Um, what book do you tell everyone to read? Sun Tzu, uh, Art of the War. What's your secret superpower, aside from your wife, Amy? Uh, my superpower is the suspension of disbelief. For coders in the audience, what's the one skill you recommend they learn right now? AI, right. Uh, and let me just refine that. I know this is a violation of the lightning round That's rules, okay. right. Um, it's not about programming, it's about training. If you could tell Xi Jinping one thing, what would it be? The wolf warrior feels good. It, it, it may make you look good in the mirror for 15 minutes, but it's the road to disaster. And finally, what is your favorite cyber podcast? I'm hoping it rhymes with sick gear. Uh, click here? Oh Mars. <laughs>
She was at the NSA for 13 years before moving into private practice and then serving as a senior minority counsel on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Security researchers from Trellix say they've discovered eight zero-day vulnerabilities targeting a popular industrial control system made by Carrier Global, the home appliance company. The vulnerabilities affect the Lenel S2 Mercury Access Control Panel, which, among other things, is used to grant physical access to facilities. The control panels are widely used in the healthcare, education, and transportation industries, as well as federal agencies and organizations. Trellix said adversaries combined both known and novel techniques, which allowed them to hack the system and achieve root access. Carrier disputed the idea that these are zero-day vulnerabilities, but told the record that their team worked with Trellix on remediation. And finally, companies are still not reporting ransomware attacks to CISA, despite the Biden administration's efforts to encourage them to do so. That's according to Eric Goldstein, an executive assistant director there. He said only a tiny fraction of ransomware infections are reported to the government and said the problem is getting worse. The lack of reporting means CISA struggles to track what ransomware groups are doing when they break into organizations. Today's episode was produced by Will Jarvis and Sean Powers, and it was edited by Karen Duffin with fact-checking from Darren Ancrum. Ben Levingston composed our theme and original music for the episode. We had additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Click Here is a production of the Record by Recorded Future. We want to hear from you. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts. And you can connect with us at clickyourshow.com. I'm Dina Temple-Raston, and we'll be back on Tuesday. Looking for more of the cybersecurity and intelligence coverage you get on Click Here? Then check out our sister publication, The Record, from Recorded Future News. You'll get breaking cyber news from reporters in New York, Washington, London, and Kiev, among others. And you'll see for yourself why it attracts hundreds of thousands of page views every month. Just go to the record.media.